This is Undefiled, a podcast dedicated to demystifying biblical truths about sex, love, and marriage. I'm your host, David Grams. You should know about me that I love marriage, and it's because I love marriage so much that I want Christians to experience thriving relationships and marriages, a healthy and shameless sexuality, and to be able to talk about these things boldly and confidently with anyone. By listening to this podcast, you'll discover that most of what we think we know about biblical marriage and sexuality has been adulterated by cultural additives. My wife, Allie, and I implore you to renew your mind to a pure biblical understanding and your relationships will be transformed. Whether you're single, dating, married, divorced, I believe this podcast will bless you immensely. If you're interested in reading any of my books, visit valiantmi.com store. Let's get to it. Hey, Undefiled Podcast listeners, this is David. For this episode, we're going to be going over something a little bit different. The past few weeks or so, we've been going over chapters in the book, Undefiled, which is this book right here, um, to talk about sexuality in a way that's a little bit more systematic. But I'm going to deviate from that a little bit this week. And I want to talk about what lust is and how you avoid it. Now, first of all, those of you who are listening to or watching this podcast, when I say the word lust, specifically in the sexual context, I just want you to imagine what you think of when you think of the sin of lust. What is lust? And it's not to glorify it, but what do you associate it with, Associate that word with? Now, for me, if I were to be asked that question a few years ago, what I would have imagined is, and this is assuming you probably are imagining this as well, that lust is in the sexual context an intense or... Uh, some people would even say sexual attraction or sexual desire uh, directed towards anyone other than your spouse or somebody you are not married to is typically what we will say lust is. Now, that is not what the definition of lust is, and biblically speaking. And so the reason why it's important for us to properly define it is because people have added to the word of God something it doesn't say, and as a result... The Bible says the law or the legalism around it actually causes sin to be aroused. So the Bible says in Romans chapter 7, like verses 5 and 6, it says that our sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Now, Sinful passions are aroused by the law. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, I believe it's in verse 56, that the law strengthens sin. So commandments, ordinances, precepts, all of that strengthens sin. That's what the Bible says. Now, here's why. When you are told not to do something or when you are told something is wrong, it immediately causes you to think of it. There are certain things that we're told not to do that we would never even think of doing. It would not ever be conceived in our minds not to do something or to do something at all until it was told us not to do it. And so that is how laws work. When it tells you what not to do, it arouses the temptation to do it because of the spirit of rebellion. There's there's something about mankind that is so almost authoritative and domineering that it wants to resist the expectation 
to be subjected to an authority. Because the Bible says we were made to have dominion over this earth. We were made to be authoritative figures. And so when we're told not to do something, there's something in the human nature, aside from the Holy Spirit, that wants to resist that, that wants to fight against that. And so the law is actually speaking right to that rebellious nature that's in sinful man and says you should disobey that commandment. And that's why the Bible says that therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. You actually become more aware of sin through the law. Through commandments, you become more aware of sin. And that's in Romans chapter 3, verse 19. And so an example, if we're to bring this all the way back to Genesis, what you see happening with Adam and Eve, the first temptation, it's actually the lust of the eyes to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we see this from the very beginning. Lust shows up, not in a sexual context necessarily, but in a, in a desire of the eye for something, right? And so what happens is the serpent comes to Eve and asks Eve, what did God say? And Eve said, well, the Lord says we're not supposed to eat of this tree and we're not supposed to touch it. But here's the kicker. God never said not to touch the tree. He said not to eat of it. And so the serpent capitalized on Eve's misunderstanding of the word of God, which then led her to be tempted. And so what Eve did is she added a commandment, which God never gave. What she did was she intensified the legalism around relationship with God. And because of that, it aroused the temptation to disobey. And she looked at the tree and found it desirable to make her wise in direct connection with her adding that commandment that never extended from the mouth of God. And so lust, if we're to say, to bring this all around here, that lust is sexual desire or attraction, if you will, for someone who is not your spouse that is entertained, then you are in sin. That's lust, right? Now, here's what I'm arguing here. The Bible does not define lust that way. If you say being attracted to somebody who is not your spouse is lust, you are adding a, uh, adding a feature or a layer to the sin of lust that isn't in the biblical description. As a result, you're intensifying legalism, which actually will arouse sin and temptation even more. And so we, it's really, really important that we understand what the Bible says lust is. Now, what I want us to do is think about the context that it's most typically used in or the scripture that the term or the sin of lust is drawn from uh, most particularly and, and most commonly. And that's in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus talked about how adultery begins in the heart. And in that passage he said, you have heard that it was said, thou shalt not commit adultery. And then Jesus said, but I say to you, Whoever looks at a woman to lust for her in his heart or to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus' point was, if you look at a person with the intent to lust or look with lust, you're guilty of adultery in your heart. But it's not just adultery, it's also fornication or any form of sexual immorality. Any sinful act, any harmful act actually begins or is conceived in a person's own thoughts and desires in their heart. And so Jesus' point was, you are guilty of adultery or fornication or whatever if you've allowed that to be conceived in your heart or if you've, you've fed that, you've thought it, uh, uh, meditate on it, meditated on it in your heart. So when Jesus said, if you look with lust 
What did he mean by that? Now, the Greek word for lust very simply means covetousness. That's the most simple definition. On top of that, really to add another layer to it, all it means is to desire something intensely, sometimes even obsessively, what is not your own. It actually begins as envy. So in, in the old, uh, old Covenant, in the Ten Commandments, when God said, Thou shalt not envy thy neighbor's wife, so that the point was don't envy anything. Uh, do not do not envy was the simple principle. And then he then defined what you shouldn't envy. One of the things he mentioned was not to uh, covet or envy thy neighbor's spouse, essentially. And so when Jesus said, if you lust in your heart, that's in connection to the Ten Commandments. Jesus' point was, if you covet someone who is not yours, someone you are not married to, then you have already committed adultery with them in your heart. It means in your heart, you're pursuing in your thought life the act of engaging sexually with a person. And what ends up happening is that leads you to desire them, to crave for them. And it's ultimately rooted in envy when they are not your spouse. And so here's why it's important, why we have to understand it very simply as that. If you define lust as envy or covetousness and end it there, it'll keep you safe. But if you say lust is attraction or lust is looking at a woman or lust is you know, looking at somebody who's not your spouse, you're adding, again, a sense of legalism that isn't in the word. Now, here's the thing. If married or not, as a human being, if you look at somebody and you find them attractive and they're not your spouse... That is not lust. To look at someone and recognize or admire beauty in whether their personality or appearance, that is not lust. Lust is to covet someone who is not your own, somebody who's not your spouse. And so if you believe looking at a person and seeing, recognizing, or admiring beauty is lust, what ends up happening is with it, as a human being with the ability to recognize beauty, if you condemn that, what you're condemning is something that is in your nature from God, which is to be able to look at what he's created and recognize that it is beautiful and pleasant. That is not sin. If you call that sin, you're adding condemnation to your life. And what ends up happening as a result is that condemnation leads you to suppress and beat down yourself. It actually causes you to condemn yourself. And the Bible says there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And that condemnation actually arouses greater temptation because then you feel actually directed to sin by a desire that was not original or by a uh, part of your nature that was not originally sinful. And so the Bible says in Romans 14, that if any man thinks something to be unclean, to him it is unclean. And Paul's point there, again, is in Romans 14, is that even something that is not inherently sinful, if you believe it is sinful, it actually does become sinful to you, and it then arouses temptation when it otherwise would not. For example, if... I believe, like, let's let's talk about alcohol, for example. I never grew up uh, having any temptation for alcohol. I've never, never taken a sip of anything alcoholic. 
I don't have anything against those who do drink on occasion. Um, there's there's really no scripture in the Bible that says it's, it's wrong to have a glass of wine, for example. Um, so I don't have any temptation for that. It's just not, it's not an issue in my life. But if I began to entertain the thought of some kind of evil in alcohol, and I start to mow that over in my mind, and I start to meditate on it, all of a sudden something that was not an issue becomes an issue because I magnified it in a way that was uh, rooted in condemnation. And so the same thing can be applied to a human being or a Christian's ability to recognize beauty in people or in the world around them. Like, for example, if I were to believe that it is absolutely sinful for me to set eyes, uh, let's just say inadvertently, like in passing, on any woman other than my spouse, I would start to condemn myself if I do that, whether accidentally or on purpose. And as a result, I'm magnifying sin and it becomes more and more and more unclean to me. And it actually causes me to focus on sin so much that I'm no longer dwelling on what is good. Because the Bible says in Philippians 4, 8, says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, uh, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good report, if there's any virtue or anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The point in that passage is that we're to meditate on things that produce life, to set our minds on things that produce life. Colossians 3 verse 3 says to set your mind on things above and not on things on the earth. And so if you are condemning yourself for anything, you are setting your mind on something that is not uh, just noble, true, pure, lovely, virtuous, praiseworthy, um, of good report, things like that. And so our, our, our goal, our focus is to set our mind on what is good. Now, here's the thing. Now that we've covered, we're not to condemn something that God doesn't condemn in the Bible or add a commandment um, where God never added one. What then is sin? Like, for example, for a, for a, you know, a young man who's married, um, speaking just of myself for my own personal example, is it wrong for me or less for anyone, for any young man, uh, any man in general to look at uh, another woman and recognize that she's beautiful? No. Biblically speaking, there's no sin in that. Now, here's where it creates a problem. Now, I'm not talking about, um, you know, things like if, if you're you know, walking through the mall and kind of gawking at a, you know, Victoria's Secret model, or if you're watching pornography, you know, that's, that would be lust. <laughs> you are focusing on uh, uh, something that leads, leads to envy, leads to covetousness, leads to evil desire. And so that's, that's something different. But I'm just talking about inadvertently, or, or you, you see someone in passing, you find them attractive. That's not what lust is. Now, what I want to bring up at this point is, well, what do we make of where Job in, this is in Job 31, uh, verse 1, where he said, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look upon a young woman um, or a young virgin or young virgin or young maid is how King James translates it. Now, it's really important to bring up that verse because Job is saying, the covenant I have made with, I, I, with my eyes, in other words, the agreement that I have with my sight is that I will not look upon a young woman. And, and Job is a married man. So he's saying, in general, a protective effort here to guard my hearts and not look at a woman who's not my spouse. However, in the original Hebrew, it doesn't say to look upon a woman. 
um, it actually says, and I think it translates it this way in King James Version. Um, it says, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to think upon a young maid. And in Hebrew, it means to consider, to perceive uh, deeply. It's talking about actually thinking about something deeply, um, to ponder something, to meditate on something. So what Job was actually saying is that the covenant he's made with his eyes is that he will not let his sight cause him to meditate on or entertain uh, an envious desire for a young woman who is not his wife. To say that we should never look upon anyone Number one, it's nearly impossible because you, you'd have to walk around blind if, if you were just to never look at anybody. The point is that when you start condemning your eyes for seeing and recognizing attractive people, you are starting to entertain sin. You condemn yourself and you arouse temptation and a magnification of evil when you do that. If you understand your eyes were made for good and you just say, Lord, thank you, for my eyes, thank you for my ears, thank you for my heart, and thank you for the people you put on this planet, and thank you for the way that you have created beauty. Thank you for just the fact that I, I, I find what is admirable in your creation. And if that's your attitude, you associate what God gave you with good, and then it doesn't arouse a condemnation or temptation anymore, because you know that your eyes are not unclean. They're not they're not defiled because the Bible says now that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, that this temple of God is holy. It's the, God did not design your body to lead you into sin. And so in the new covenant, the Bible says that this temple of God is holy and, and that includes your eyes. And so what the Bible says, what Jesus said, is that if your eye is single, your whole body will be full of light. In other words, your eye is an instrument for absolute good when you use your eyes right. His point was, when it says your eye is single, that means something that is folded together to point in one particular direction. So instead of being spread thin or divided or double-minded, the point is you take the, the vision, the focus of your mind, and you fold it together in a single direction for a single track, and you say, I'm giving myself to focus on one thing, and the one thing we're called to focus on is things above, not on things on the earth. Our relationship with God, you set your eyes on Christ. So Jesus' point was, when you set your focus on him, you won't be distracted. Your eyes will not be averted. You will not find yourself wandering off in thinking towards lust, towards envy, towards any sexual sin, because your eye is single. You are exclusively focused on Jesus. Now, when you are exclusively focused on Jesus and your eye is good in that sense, then your eyes do not become something that arouses sin because you've trained them to be engaged in focus on everything that is from above, everything that is heavenly. Um, everything virtuous and of good report. And so what this means then is you are not going to associate attractive people with sin. Now this isn't this adds another layer to it. It's very important because especially people who have come out of um, whether it be an addiction to pornography or just simply struggle in that area, um, there's just this this tendency that when you see somebody who is either, you know, not fully clothed, somebody you find attractive, just out in the world. I'm not talking about necessarily in the church, just people in general. When you see them, if you then say, oh, I have to look away because otherwise I'm going to be tempted, 
I hope you realize that when you do that, you're associating one of God's creations with sin. Now, this is a big problem because especially when you're trying to recover from an addiction to pornography, you're going to start to associate uh, men and women in you know, pornographic contact, uh, content with sin itself, that you're going to start to, def- to define certain people as those who arouse sin in you. You've all of a sudden identified them by your sin and their sin, and they've become an actual object of sin instead of an object of the love of God. And now that's, I hope, I hope you guys see this now, but that's not good <laughs> because, and this is something the Lord taught me because, you know, just being um, vulnerable, vulnerable about my backstory, I've, I've had just like any young man, my battle with lust, sexual temptation, pornography, all that. And I was first introduced to, you know, explicit content like that accidentally. It was, and I was like probably 12, 13 years old. Um, and I was, I was playing a computer game uh, online and it was like a, like a flash game. And there was nothing about, I was totally innocent, 13 year old. And I can't remember exactly how it happened, but something popped up. Um, and that kind of began this road of condemnation where I was, you know, I was ashamed. I felt guilty. Um, and I never really had a lot of conversations in my family about how to deal with this. And so then by the time I hit about 16, that's when I really surrendered my life to Jesus and the Lord set me free from, from lust, temptation, pornography, temptation, all that, um, completely free and have been free ever since. But up to that point, very shortly after I got free and started thinking about dating and all that, I realized that I had been running from the evil of sexual immorality. But I felt that in order to run from that evil, I had to run from people. Now, what I mean by that is I felt that certain people, because of how they dressed, how they talked, how they behaved themselves, that they were objects of sin, that they were going to be what tempts me. And it was impossible for me to view them as somebody loved by God and to be loved in Christ-likeness by me because I felt that they were a catalyst for sin in my life. And so I couldn't look at certain women with real Christ-like love because I was associating them with sin or identifying them by sin. So real freedom from lust or from sexual temptation is not the ability or the willpower to look away from a woman or a person. Real sexual purity and freedom is the ability to look at anyone, no matter how they're dressed, and only see what God sees. That is purity. Because then you realize that if I happen in in a, the dark and sinful world that we live in, if my eyes happen to stumble upon something that I shouldn't necessarily be looking at or meditating on, if I see a woman who's not fully clothed, whether it's on, on the beach or just out and about, whatever, if I see what the church tells me I shouldn't look at, and that immediately arouses temptation or sin in me, and I feel I must look away, you, you have to realize that what you're doing is you are running from the ability to love someone like Jesus would. Because to minister to people, you have to be able to look at them and see what God sees. 
And this is so, so important because in the way that the Lord did this for me, and this is powerful, you guys, this is like an action step for you. This really, really helped me is that one time I was praying, I said, Lord, what do I do about this? I feel like I'm associating these, you know, these women with, with sin. What, what do I, what am I supposed to do about it? And he actually told me to pray for them. He, he specifically said, I want you to actually take those thoughts captive, actually bring them up in your mind, think about, see those women, but see them as I see them and pray for them specifically, like put purpose and deliberation in actually praying for these people that I originally thought were going to arouse sin in me. And what happened was I started associ- I started associating them with their calling, their destiny, God's heart for them. And, and, and it actually became desirable for me to think about those people and pray for them. Because there's so many people who when you think of you know, the actors and whatnot in pornography that, you know, they're too far gone, they're they're filthy, they're dirty, don't look, don't think about it, don't even go there. But wait a second, God is going there. God's thinking about those people. God loves those people. And the Bible says that God sees, sees everyone naked and exposed. That's not necessarily physically, but everyone is fully exposed to him. He sees everything. And if he sees everything, he sees everyone's sin, he hears and sees everyone's thoughts as though he's sitting in the theater room of their mind. The Bible says he sees our thoughts afar off. God knows what we're going to think before we think it. And he sees that and knows that about everyone on the planet, believer or unbeliever. Now, if he sees all of that and it it doesn't become sin to him, then what that means is not that he's gouged his eyes out. It means that he can look and see with eyes of purity. And that's why Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, cast it, uh, gouge it out and cast it from you, it's better to enter into life blind than seeing, um, uh, than to be cast into eternal damnation. And so his point was not literally you have to remove your eyes. The point is that in giving your life to Jesus, you're removing yourself from the body of sin. So when Romans 6 says, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, that's the new covenant fulfillment of what Jesus is trying to say. You put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, evil desire, um, um, lust, adultery, all that. You're putting that to death. The, The point is that who you are, your character is rectified. Your character is purified. The body of sin, the part of you attached to sin is divorced. You're you are completely renouncing association of yourself with the old man so that you can be renewed in the spirit of your mind. See yourself through a new lens. See yourself through new eyes. See everyone around you with new eyes. And that is the fulfillment of when Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, cast it from you. He's saying, put to death the old man. That's his point. And you do that by renewing your mind. And that is in it's in Colossians 3, and it's also in Ephesians 4 um, and verses like that. And so it's it's so, so important to understand that God's intention is not for you to run away always from situations that tempt you. What you're called to do is to divorce the old man, which means you change how you think, you change how you see, your eyes, your sight, the sight of your mind is purified. So as a result, you can be anywhere in the world and live and see people with the love of God without being 
tempted by them because you do not identify them by their sin, but you identify them by their true identity in Christ, what they're made for, what they're worth, what they're called to, um, and who God says they are. Like if you imagine seeing the people that you typically thought would tempt you and thinking about them what God thinks about them instead of what the sinful man thinks about them or the religious man thinks about them. And so does this mean you ha- you just are completely careless and reckless about what you look at? Of course not. What this means, my point, is that you cannot run from the sight of things to protect yourself from sin, which when instead you should be replacing your eyesight. You need to change how you see, not remove yourself from situations where you'd be tempted to see what you shouldn't. That's the because re- that's what that's the fortitude of your life. That's what keeps you safe. And the only way to do that is intimacy with God, knowing the Bible, knowing the scriptures, who you are in Christ. That transforms you. And that is what God wants for for each and and every one of us. And and so that's that's really what I wanted to get to for this episode. But just one last thing to kind of um, add some more clarification here. So I've defined lust. Lust is covetousness. It's not recognizing beauty. To look at someone and find them attractive and find them pleasant to look at, that is not sin. That's not lust. Sin sets in when it causes you to covet. Now, what about people who just don't, who dress what we may call promiscuously in the world? What do we make of that? What do we make of just how it's culturally acceptable to wear bathing suits these days that are basically underwear. You know, it's it's not what bathing suits or swim swimsuits used to be. So what do we make of that? Here's the thing. Christians, I believe, should do what they can to dress modestly. That it's it's in it's in scripture that that women, for example, should dress dress modestly. However, people in the world don't. And as Christian men, women too, if as Christians we are out in the world and we find it difficult to be in certain areas with because of fear that we will stumble, what that indicates is not that we're in the wrong place in the world. What that indicates is we don't have the spiritual fortitude, the focus of our eyes to see people with purity. That's the problem. It's not where we are in the world because Paul said you would have to go out of the world if you were never to keep company with people uh, who are not Christians who are in the world. Because his point was don't don't keep company with somebody named a brother, a Christian, who is willfully living in these particular sins. But he said, I didn't tell you not to keep company with people like this who are in the world because if I said that, you'd have to leave the world. His point was we might as well die and go to heaven if we're never to be around people who who are sinning, Pe- people who are out in the world dressing promiscuously and, and living, you know, a a uh, unprincipled, uh, licentious, promiscuous lifestyle. If we were never going to be around those kinds of people, if we're never supposed to be around those kinds of people, whether at work or on the street or whatever, then there's no reason to be continuing. To continue to live in this world that that because the point is that's not what purity is purity is not to avoid the darkness purity is going into the darkness as a light 
That is what purity is, to be a light no matter how much darkness is around you. Now, yes, evil company does corrupt good habits, but we're not talking about evil company or evil companionship. What we're talking about is being exposed to people in the world for the sake of evangelism, actually reaching them. And so that being understood, you know, what, what do we make of the, 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 you know, nudity, just to be real, the nudity that's in the world, the, um, and, and the cleavage, things like that. Like, how, how do we handle that? Well, here's the thing. Think about Genesis. Genesis 1, 2, before the fall of man, people were naked. And that was just normal. So in a world without sin, nudity nudity wasn't sinful. It was just how people lived. So the association of nudity with sin came into the world as soon as man fell, as soon as man sinned or disobeyed God. What this means is that if we're justified in Christ and purity is restored to us, that means we're not to see ourselves or each other and see ourselves as defiled. You see, we, we see each other as pure and blameless and holy and above reproach. So when you see somebody I'm just going to be bold about this. Even when you happen to see someone naked, and let's just say whether it's, you know, online or out in the world or whatever, not saying intentionally, not going for that, but I'm saying inadvertently, if that happens, purity is to be able to see that and say, I don't see you as a person of, or an object of lust. I don't see you as an object of sin. I can look in your eyes and, and, and not see the evil on you, but who you were made to be in Christ. And I can speak to your heart. I can speak to who you are and not be made to stumble because of a mistake that you made. Because if someone's nudity is going to cause me to stumble, that is not their fault. Should they be doing that? Probably not not just probably, no, they shouldn't be doing that. But the real issue is me not having eyes of purity. It's not their problem. And so as Christians, it's about us. And so I think to to have purity restored, like ultimate purity is to be in the Garden of Eden like it originally was, naked, and not have it be anything that arouses sin. That's purity. To see nudity and have it not arouse sin. That, that's the purity before the fall of man. And that's what's supposed to be restored to us. Now, yes, we're still supposed to be wearing clothing. I'm not saying I'm a proponent of nude beaches or anything like that. Of course not. That's, that's not me. But what I'm saying is that even in the extreme case of seeing somebody completely, you know, naked, that should not arouse sin. And the only reason, or I should say, shouldn't say the only reason, one of the only reasons that that arouses sin is because we believe that it will. We believe we are victims to that, and so, therefore, we are. Because as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. That's what the Bible says. That's uh, like Proverbs 23, verse 7, as I believe where, where that is. Proverbs 23, 7. It might be 27, 3, but I think it's 
23.7 of Proverbs. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. If you believe you're a victim to that kind of sin, you will be. In any sight. Like, it, somebody doesn't even have to be, you know, naked. It, it can just be... Pe- people are tempted by the tiniest of uh, of things just because they can't see people purely. And, and that's the issue. And so... My exhortation to all of you to protect yourself from lust is not to always be uh, frantic about what you're looking at. That does not protect you from temptation. What protects you from temptation is saying, Lord, praying this. Lord, help me see with your eyes. Help me see like Adam and Eve saw in the Garden of Eden before sin came into this world. That when I look at people, regardless of the condition they're in, whether naked or clothed or anything in between, that I would only see who you say they are. And on top of that, not condemning yourself for recognizing and admiring beauty in a person because that is not lust. Lust is covetousness. And so that's what I wanted to get to. And I just want to read one verse and do just a brief explanation of it so you guys can kind of uh, get, get things summarized here. So Colossians 3, verse 5, says this, Therefore put to death your members or your parts, the instruments of yourself, of your being, which are on the earth. Then it lists them off. So when Colossians says, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, uh, Paul in that passage is writing and telling us to put to death these things, and these are the things that are on the earth. You want to know what's on the earth? You want to know what is an earthly member of your being? He lists it off. So he says, First, fornication, which is sexual immorality, the Greek word porneia, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in whom you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. King James Version of this passage says, Mortify, therefore, your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So I'm going to stick with this King James Version. So mortify means put to death. Execute your members which are on the earth. Get rid of them. So sexual immorality, uncleanness. Now uncleanness in the Greek means impurity. Now the Bible says in Matthew 5 verse 8 that the pure in heart shall see God. And for something to be pure is for something to be untainted, unblemished. It is white purity, white light. It's without any spot or blemish or wrinkle. That's the point. So he begins the list. Now this is important. He begins the list with sexual immorality. The act of doing something sexually immoral is the first thing he puts on the list. It's important though that secondly, he says impurity. Impurity is something that is within you. Sexual morality is an action you take. Uncleanness is a way that you think in your heart. So the reason why he lists it in this order is he's saying this is the order of things that lead to sexual immorality. The act of sexual sexual immorality, what what comes before that is impurity. Now impurity would mean to see and think about a person in a way that is blemished, defiled, impure. So for example, if you were to say, I think purely about that person, what that would mean, what you would imply is that I actually care about that person and I love them in a way that is selfless, 
that it's without lust, it's without envy, it's without agenda, it's without ulterior motive, it's to love someone purely or or to purely or exclusively love someone. That is what cleanness would be in your heart. So uncleanness would be to see and think about a person without love or a love that's tainted by selfishness, lust, greed, envy, some kind of selfish agenda or ambition. And so he's saying you can't act in a way that's sexually immoral, yeah, sexually immoral, without first thinking about a person in a tainted or selfish way. So if you are loving a person impurely, that comes before sexual immorality. So if you love someone, really love someone like Jesus does, you will never act in a way that's sexually immoral. If the love of Christ in you is being defiled by selfishness or lust or whatever, that's what leads to sexual morality. So that's that first thing. And then before impurity or uncleanness, he says inordinate affection. Um, New King James calls that passion. That is just talking about inordinate affection is like a uh, illicit desire. And by passion, it's talking about a, a, a intense craving left unbridled that is lustful in motive. So before impurity, you have to entertain a desire that is left unbridled. It is uh, over over intensified. Like for example, sexual desire inherently is not sinful. God gave sexual desire to mankind. Sex pre-existed sin. So our sexuality is not sinful. However, you can be brought under the power of sexual desire and what was originally good becomes sinful because it is left without godly boundaries. And so inordinate affection would be illicit desire. In other words, it's desire that is became a lustful craving because it was without self-control. And so he's saying in order to get to a place where you think impurely about a person, you have to entertain desire that is unbridled. So let's say, for example, you found somebody who you're not married to physically attractive. That's just real life example. You found them attractive. You say, wow, like that person, that person's beautiful. That person's good looking. And you could even say like, thank you, God, that you created beauty. And, you know, I appreciate about, I appreciate that about them. Um, I, and maybe you get to know them. I appreciate their personality. They just have a beautiful personality. They're just a wonderful person. There's no sin in that in any way. Now, if you entertain that so much, you start to obsessively focus on, your eye is no longer single on Christ. Now you're thinking about them just way too much. That inordinate affection leads to impurity because now you can't genuinely love that person without thinking selfishly or lustfully. Do you see the pattern? It, it, it goes from one thing to another because the Bible says in James 1 that, that sin or desire when it's conceived brings forth sin and sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. So one side of the extreme you've got death, but death and destruction begins with a desire. And that desire doesn't have to be a sinful desire. Desire in general is something from God. Sexual desire is from God. But if that becomes unbridled, 
if it becomes uncontrolled, left unchecked, uh, allowed to explode in passion without the boundaries of Christ-like love, it becomes sinful. And so that's why he's saying sexual immorality, the action of it, before that is impurity, thinking about a person impurely. Before that is passion that's left unchecked, sexual desire, which was from God that is left unchecked. Then before that, you've got evil, evil concupiscence. And uh, New King James calls that evil desire. And, and then it says evil concupiscence, concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry. So idolatry really is the basis of this. So, But let's start with evil concupiscence or evil desire. Evil in the Greek just means worthless. It, it, it means completely trivial. It's not like a nefarious desire. It's talking about worthlessness. So it's saying worthless desire. So before unbridled passion is a worthless longing that's entertained. So before somebody becomes uh, lustful or insatiable in desire, before that, you entertain desires that are worthless. They're just not worth your time. They're not worth your thought life. So like, for example, when you are watching movies, now this is I think evil concupiscence, I think this is what it's talking about. You start watching things, listening to things, feeding yourself on content that is worthless. It's not going to produce anything good in you. Like if you're watching movies that just have a bunch of sex scenes and and, and nudity and, and it's just what the world calls mature content, that's what you feed yourself on. You know, maybe, maybe not, you believe that's sinful but you are entertaining a worthless desire. It means nothing. It produces nothing good. You're not setting your mind on things above in that case. And so it is worthless concupiscence, worthless desire. And so because you entertain that worthless desire, it produces nothing good for you. That is only going to lead to that inordinate affection or unbridled passion, which leads to impurity, which leads to sexual immorality. So now here's the thing. Before evil concupiscence, before worthless desire, he says covetousness, which is idolatry. So he defines covetousness as idolatry. Now, what is idolatry? Having other gods before Christ. Now, what this means is something becomes more important to you than God. Now, if you really think about that, we would save the world from sexual immorality if there was no idolatry. If your eye was single on Christ, which was Jesus' whole point, nothing was more important to you than God. You'd be so focused on him, you, would, you, you wouldn't entertain any desire that's worthless. And because you wouldn't have any worthless desire, because your desire is completely fixed on him, you wouldn't have unbridled passion, you wouldn't have impure thinking about a person, and of course, therefore, you wouldn't be in sexual immorality. And so even in marriage, like this is the point here, that even when you're married, and just using my life as an example, if my wife becomes more important to me than God, or if getting what people call sexual needs met is more important than God, all of a sudden I'm going to start entertaining my sexuality so much in a way that is uh, improper that the result would be this domino effect uh, or the snowball effect, I should say, of unbridled passion to impurity, I would be thinking impurely about my own wife. I would start to over-sexualize her. I'd start to objectify her. All of a sudden, she's just a body and not a spirit. And then that opens the door to sexual immorality and adultery, um, uh, um, 
uh, infidelity and things like that. And so you guys can see, once you read it that way, you can see the pattern in this. And so it's saying the way you protect yourself from the earthly sin of fornication is get rid of idolatry. Get rid of idolatry. Kick out anything in your life that's distracting you from your relationship with God. Like if you got to get rid of your TV, if you got to fast from your phone, get rid of video games, get rid of movies, get rid of all that. If that's causing idolatry, if that's leading you away from your focus on Jesus, that's the very beginning. That's the that's the conception of something as terrible um, as what we would call fornication or or just sexual immorality. Just a you know a, a, a lascivious lifestyle and so you really got to think about this and it says for which things the wrath of god is coming on the children of disobedience the wrath of god in other words there's like there's there's a resulting judgment the judgment on sin and and he's judging idolatry it's not just fornication here something becoming more important to you than god that's idolatry and it's saying the wrath of god comes on that and so um, and it's not it's not saying God will judge you. As a Christian, Jesus took your judgment on the cross. You don't have to fear the judgment of God. But he's saying for the unbeliever, like people are suffering from the consequences of their own sin. The wages of sin is death. They're dying and they're experiencing condemnation, eternal separation from God because of one thing, idolatry, which then conceived everything else. Something becoming more important to you than God. So it's just so, so important. He's saying really, really think about this. Be so, so careful because this is not to be played with. Um, and so it's just it's just a, a different way of looking at it. Again, this is Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Good way of looking at this because it really changes the game. If you fix the idolatry issue, you fix everything else. Everything. And that's what I found. And that's why when you have things like uh, uh, programs, they're not, they're not bad, but like Covenant Eyes, for example, or... Or, or systems, things you can install on your electronic devices to keep you from pornography. You're putting the cart before the horse if that's all you rely on. Because what you're trying to say is you want to protect yourself from fornication, which is at the top of the list, but you're not fixing the idolatry issue. How is your relationship with God? What, what What is your love for the word? Do you fear God? Do you have an intimacy with Christ? Because if you have that, you have no idolatry. And if you have no idolatry, idolatry, you don't have fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, or evil concupiscence. You don't have to worry about those things if you fix the idolatry issue. And that was what God taught me in my life to really set me free from this stuff. I just had to realize my relationship with God is what's 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 fractured here. It's, it's, not, it's not any of these desires. It's not my sexuality. That's not the problem. The problem is idolatry. So you identify that in your life and you fix everything else. Everything else just comes uh, automatically. It's just a natural byproduct of fixing the relationship with God issue. And so that's what I'll end this episode with. I said I would just close with something short, but <laughs> that added another 20 minutes. But I hope it ministered to you guys. Uh, that's what I wanted to get through. Um, and, and share this podcast with your friends, family members, whoever you feel you need to share it with. I really appreciate your support, listening, and watching. Bless you guys. I will talk to you next Thursday.